This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Come, Lord Jesus, we need you this morning to fill us again, to feed us again with your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and your abundance of grace. I pray that you would come and be strong in my weakness, and you would come and meet each of us in our weakness, in our place of great need. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We continue this morning with Epiphany Tide and um, these pictures that reveal the identity and the character of Jesus. Um, And we start with this passage this morning. We encounter Jesus in Luke daring his listeners to see God's grace, to see God's mercy as bigger and more radical than they could imagine. So let's look at what is happening in this passage. Jesus is in his hometown, and the people have heard about him doing miracles elsewhere, and they want him to come. They want him to perform. They want him to prove themselves to him. They want to see a spectacle, and they want uh, him to kind of do some magic so they can see who he is. And uh, Jesus doesn't seek to prove himself to his hometown. Instead, um, he responds to them and tells them two stories, and they suddenly get so angry that they try to kill him. They try to throw him off a cliff. It's a very dramatic story. And it's curious to me when I read it why they get so angry, because it seems to escalate really quickly. What does Jesus say right before they try to kill him? He says, but in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when there was a famine, Elijah was sent to none of them. But he went to Zarephath. And then he tells them another story about Naaman, the leper, And he says, there was a lot of lepers in Israel. And then when the prophet came, when Elisha came, he didn't go to any of those. He went to Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus had just announced a few passages before, and uh, Father Jonathan covered this last week. He announced this amazing good news, this really majestic kind of inaugural statement that the spirit of the Lord was upon him, that the poor would receive good news, that the prisoners would be set free and the blind given sight, that this was the year of the Lord's favor. It was this expectant, big, good news. And the people of Israel, the people of Jesus' hometown, they were looking for liberation from, pagan, from a pagan nation. They wanted a deliverer to rescue them from oppression and to restore what they thought was the rightful place of Israel. And Jesus is pointing out that when the great prophets were active, 
when God sent people among the nations to do his work, it wasn't Israel who benefited from the great prophets in these stories, but it was the pagans, the outsiders, the unbelievers, the ones they least expected for God to care about, much less to love and bless and heal. Jesus even talks about a commander of a pagan army. N.T. Wright says that this would be very similar to someone coming in the middle of World War II and preaching to you, the congregation, about God's love and mercy and grace to Adolf Hitler. It was that scandalous. It was that disruptive. It would have been seen as disloyalty, as a traitor move, something that, um, that was um, going against his own people to tell the story. The Messiah was bringing good news, but not the good news that they wanted him to bring. They wanted to hear that God would vindicate them and pour out his wrath on their enemies. And Jesus was telling them that grace went to the people they hated and sometimes bypassed the people on their own team, in their own club. Jesus was showing them a grace that was lavish and totally unpredictable and shocking and scandalous. The Messiah had not come to destroy his hometown's enemies, but to show love and grace and mercy to those very people, to those very enemies. Jesus came as a prophet. He talks about prophets and he calls himself a prophet in this. He came to his hometown as a prophet and N.T. Wright says he proclaims a God, the true God, that came to rescue the wrong people. He's rescuing the wrong crowd. And his listeners responded to that, and they were furious. Because God wasn't rescuing the people they wanted him to rescue. He wasn't pouring out wrath on the people they wanted him to pour out wrath on. I lived uh, really briefly overseas in East Africa at a boarding school, and I was in this area, remote area, where the gospel was a really, really new message. The message of Jesus was really new. In fact, the place that I was in, there wasn't even, um, the scriptures were not yet translated into the language of the villages that were around us. And there were missionaries there who had lived there for decades to learn the language, to seek to translate the scriptures into the language of the people. And um, one of the things that we saw a lot in this context is the gospel was coming in sort of the first, for the first time to this group of people is this practice called syncretism. Have you, are you guys familiar with that term, syncretism? Many, I'm getting some head nods. Syncretism is when you take two different faith claims or two different um, religious views or belief systems, and you kind of blend them together. You just add 
without any subtraction. And often, it's in such a way that changes the content of each. So when I was in far western Uganda in this tiny village, the people around me had practiced a kind of ancestor worship where they would um, make sacrifices or gifts to ancestors to avoid curses or to get blessings. And then they would hear the gospel of Jesus. And many, many people gave their lives to Jesus. But what the elders of our church, the African elders, saw and the missionaries together was that um, people would try very uh, creatively and pretty desperately to hold on to both. So they would sacrifice to their ancestors on Saturday to make sure those bases were covered and they were all good and taken care of there. And then they would come to church on Sunday and also worship Jesus. And they would blend together all the claims of the gospel and the other claims of their culture into this kind of new amalgam that ended up not being actually Christianity, that wasn't the message of the gospel. It would be unrecognizable to most of you. It was a different faith altogether, a kind of false belief that Jesus and the gospel were part of and that language was part of but it wasn't the actual truth of the universe. It wasn't the message of Jesus. And what we see in this passage is Jesus is pushing back against a kind of syncretism. The people of Nazareth have blended the story of the God of Israel, a story that from the very beginning, that we even see when, with God's covenant with Abraham, was a story of God showing love and mercy to the nations, to the whole world. And they had taken that story and they had blended it with kind of an ethnic and nationalist story. Their own story of their own people about how God's grace was primarily or just for them and people like them and people they liked and that their enemies were very conveniently God's enemies as well. And God showed grace to the people they wanted him to and that they liked, and he showed wrath to pagans and sinners and outsiders. And Jesus steps into that and says, no, look at your own story. Your story reveals a God who is absolutely surprising in the way he doles out his love. He's promiscuous even with his love for all of the nations, that God's love and favor does not belong to you or your group or your ethnicity. It's this giant and endless love that goes even to your enemies. And he's calling them out of syncretism to the truth of the good news in all its shocking potency. And I think, I think it's easy for us, for me, for those of us in the West especially, and those of us who've grown up around the church and who've heard the gospel a lot, to look at the practice of ancestor worship that I saw overseas or to look at the assumptions of these people of Nazareth and to think, well, we don't do that here. We practice the pure gospel here but I'd like you to think now and maybe spend some time this week praying through and journaling about and asking the Lord to show you how we, how you and I practice syncretism. 
do the same thing that we see the people of Nazareth doing here? What do we take and blend with the good news of the gospel so that it's no longer the gospel but something else? One example I've seen a lot is nationalism. We can assume that God is the God of America or that America is the so-called Christian nation so that America's enemies are God's enemies. And I want us to be uncomfortable that Jesus says that there is no nation or people group that he belongs to that can claim him only for themselves. That there's a fundamental conflict between the cross and the flag. That there's a fundamental conflict between the gospel and the American dream. That Jesus will never be the property of one country or language or people. We can also have a syncretism between our politics and the gospel. That God is a God of conservatives and that he is meant to you know, pour down wrath on godless liberals. Or that God is a God of progressives and always for liberation and that he despises you know, the GOP or Trump supporters. Whatever kind of you conscript God to be for you and against your enemies, God sort of shows up and lets his grace surprise us. There's a, there's a deep exclusivity of the gospel that can be really offensive in our culture. But we have to remember there's a profound and radical inclusivity that also should shock us, and that Jesus constantly brings to the forefront. We can blend our gospel with all kinds of things, just as the people in the village in East Africa that I was in blended it with ancestor worship. So what other gospels are we shaped by? What other gospels are you shaped by? I think, like the people in our passage, we can blend our commitment to the gospel to our own ethnicity, to our own cultural assumptions, to Western assumptions about individual rights and freedoms, our commitment to capitalism, our commitment to sexual freedom and liberation, our commitment to self-help and self-liberation. And so many of us, in ways that I do this so often that sometimes I can barely see it, have made a syncretism between the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and consumerism and ease, so that we want the message of Jesus, but we, we also want the Christian faith to make our life work the way we want it to work. And we can use God himself to make things work out for us the way we want them to work out for us. And my prayer for us today is that Jesus would shock us again with this radical grace as he shocked and surprised the people in this passage. I really have come to think that if we're never uncomfortable with the gospel, if, if we're really comfortable with all the claims of Jesus, we probably don't really know the gospel or believe it. Because every time the good news, the gospel, the mission of Jesus is proclaimed in scripture, it made people uncomfortable. And it made all kinds of different people uncomfortable, all kinds of different camps uncomfortable. 
And I would love for us to ask together this week this question, to kind of hold on to this question and, and just kind of knead it, you know, like bread all day, just sort of play with it and think about it. Where is your view of grace too small? Where is your view of God's grace too small? It's not, and this is important, that God didn't call those outside of Israel, those who worshipped false gods, to repentance. God did and does call us and all people to repentance. In fact, we see in the story of Naaman that Jesus talks about here, when Naaman was healed of leprosy, he had this encounter with grace and is through his healing. And his response is he says, Now I know there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. And he says, I will never again make a burnt offering to any other God except for the Lord. He repents for his false worship, for his idolatry. Grace changes him. It transforms his life and his worship. But I think if we're so quick to go there, if when we hear about this radically inclusive grace, we're so fast to go, but, 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 repentance. We're so fast to kind of put the brakes on that or hem that in or to remind us and everyone that God is a judge and God is the judge of the nations, all of which is true. I worry if we go there so fast, we'll never pause long enough to be really scandalized by God's grace. We'll never really face up to the reality that we practice syncretism in our own gospel, in our own lives, and that God is about rescuing the wrong people. God is about rescuing the people that we least expect him to, that his love goes even for them, the outsider. The one in your life, it's hard to like and it's hard to forgive. If this lavishness of the grace of God doesn't occasionally make us angry or shocked or amazed or uncomfortable, our imagination for God's grace is probably too small. It's too safe. Jesus was not saying that these outsiders, these unbelievers, were innocent, that they were without sin. That is not what he is saying. But he was saying that God's grace and mercy and love is for them too. That God's grace is for them too. And this morning, I want us to let grace sort of grow in our imaginations, to fill our imaginations. Where is our view of grace? Where is your view of grace too small? I want Jesus to tempt us to believe that God's love is for every person, for the ones that don't have it together, the ones who we see as really sinful, the ones who are hard for us to like, the ones we judge even. And I want you also to know that God's grace is big enough for you. You need God's grace as much as the person in your life that you think is most misguided, most evil. You need God's grace as much as that person. And the person you think is most righteous and holy and gifted and put together, they need God's grace and mercy as much as you do. 
So welcome to the club of strugglers, of the ones that need God's grace. What would it mean to let God's grace amaze you again? What would that look like? For some, it will mean this radical inclusion, that God's grace extends to others. For some, it will mean believing that God gives grace to the ones you don't want him to give grace to, that one that you hate or find difficult to forgive, the ones that have done wrong. For others here, it will mean believing God's grace extends to you, even to you, that God's mercy is enough for you, that God knows you deep down to your depths and he delights in you. For some, it will mean letting God's grace into every area of your life, the places you're scared for him to go, the places you have shut him out. In a congregation this size, every week, people are coming from all different places, from places of great joy and places of great sorrow. And many this week in particular are coming into church with great grief, with great suffering. We have lost a beloved and important member of our congregation this week who is dear friends with many of us. And people are walking in this week and they're carrying grief and they're carrying suffering and they're carrying the reality of loss. And can we believe together, can we believe for those struggling to believe that God's grace is real enough and big enough to reach every area of our life, to be big enough even to face grief and loss and pain and to meet God's love even in that place of desolation, in that place of pain. There are others that are coming in this week with the solid shame that they're carrying that it's hard to believe that if we knew about you, what you knew about you, that we would welcome you in the door. And can we believe together and believe for the strugglers enough that God is enough for even the greatest shame, that God's grace is surprising and it goes to places you never think it would go. If you are struggling this week to forgive, to believe God loves your enemies, could you allow Jesus to dare you, to tempt you, to believe that God's grace is bigger than you can imagine? We all here together struggle to see how big God's grace really is. And we all come together again to let our imaginations be filled, to let ourselves sort of run wild with how big and transformational and world-changing this grace is. That truly, truly, he comes to make his blessing known as far as the curse is found. If you need grace this morning... I want to invite you into an imaginative exercise. I want you to come, if you need grace, if you know you need grace, I want you to come again to the table this morning when we take the Eucharist together. 
And I want you in your mind to imagine, and I really do mean your imagination, like if you're a kid, it doesn't go away when you're an adult. Use your imagination as you come and as you kneel to imagine yourself standing or, or kneeling before Jesus and ask Jesus to surprise you and shock you with his grace again. Ask Jesus to show you how big his grace is, to amaze you again with his grace. In your suffering, in your grief, in your loss that is real, in your pain that is real, in your need that is real, in the fullness of who you are, in the most honest of who you are, come to Jesus and receive his grace that is big enough for all the world and for every area of your life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.